Why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 5, please? Verse 1 through 12. The message is entitled, uh, A Disciple of Christ. Um, we want to look at these Beatitudes, which are proclaimed by Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, as we're going to see as two as disciples. The Sermon on the Mount is the first of five major discourses that Matthew um, will give to us. But the most familiar and recognized by Christian and non-Christian is the Sermon on the Mount. But it's not to be confused with the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter 6. You've got to look at the context. To the same, they cover the same. Jesus spoke many times about the same material, but in different contexts. So you have to be careful of that. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is recorded here in, in chapter 5, verse 1 through, um, or chapter 5 to chapter 7. You've got about a total of 111 verses. It has been called the uh, Magna Carta of the Kingdom, Sinai of the New Testament, and the Manifesto of the Kingdom. Now, some have tried to make it a social, moral gospel in century past. And the dispensationalists interpret the Beatitudes to be the kingdom only for the kingdom age. Um, and not for the church. I reject this altogether. The Sermon on the Mount is instruction to the Christian. The only one that can fulfill this and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, 6, and 7, is the Christian who has been born again. Not just the person who goes to church. Not the person that just has it in his head. But the person who is being transformed from day to day. The contrast is outward obedience to inward submission. And obedience of the heart. Big difference. Now, others have tried to uh, attempted to um, compare the Beatitudes to the Ten Commandments as a parallel and declare that all we need to do is to live by the Sermon on the Mount. You want to start in verse 3? You don't have that. Nor do I. You and I and ourselves cannot fulfill these things. It's only the Lord Jesus Christ as we call upon his name as we'll see. So this is a tragic mistake for the Ten Commandments tell us that we are what we are to do um, to have a right relationship with God and man while the Beatitudes tell us what we are in Christ able to fulfill that. There's a big difference. The law was based on dooming, revealing man's inability to keep the law, being guilty before God, it condemns us. The Beatitudes are based on being, not doing, revealing man's enablement by the life of the Spirit through Jesus Christ. Let me read here the Beatitudes here on the Sermon on the Mount provide a threefold lens regarding disciples of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and went... He, uh, he was seated. His disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the, uh, the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst after rising, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall uh, obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Beatitudes on the Mount provide for us a threefold lens regarding disciples of Jesus Christ. There are as follows. First, what disciples do, verse 1 and 2. Secondly, who disciples are, verse 3 through 9. And what disciples can expect, verse 10 through 13. We begin with what disciples do, verse 1 and 2. Notice uh, Matthew revealed that disciples of Jesus are from a multitude of people. We're like no others. We're like everybody, in fact. 
The people were from Galilee, the capitalists. It goes back to chapter 4, verse 25. This is the context. The city of Jerusalem, Judea, beyond the Jordan. Jesus ascended to the elevated place. He went up to the mountain here, and the location is probably the Sea of Galilee without any doubt. It's called the Sea of Gennesaret also due because of the shape of a harp. That's what the word means in Luke 5.1. It's also called the Sea of Tiberias, river goats, uh, gods, after the honor of Tiberius Caesar that Antipas, uh, Herod Antipas named after. It's also called the Sea of Gennesaret, which also means harp. The lake is 14 by 9 miles in width and length. Some of you have been there with us in the Israeli trips. We go across it from um, the Tiberius side over to the museum on the other side where they found that boat submerged in the days of Jesus. So the location, traditional site, is the city of Capernaum. Um, there's an ancient synagogue there, second century. The foundation goes back to the first century where Jesus was in the house of Peter. It's on a little a small hill on the side. Now notice... Matthew revealed that the disciples of Jesus came out from the multitudes to Jesus. Listen to his words. And when he was seated, his disciples came to him. So the position of a teacher was always that of sitting down. They would expound the word of God. The students would stand. If someone fell asleep, it's easy to hear them. Boom. Drop. Somehow we've got this backwards. I'm standing. You're sitting. Notice the people to be instructed are stipulated. His disciples came to him. They have been called to Jesus and by Jesus to follow him in the previous chapter, chapter 4, 18 through 22. This is um, well over a year already that Jesus started his ministry in Galilee from his baptism as we look back to chapter 3, 16 to chapter 4, 11. He's already been in ministry for about a year. John the Baptist has been put in prison. Chapter 4, verse 12 through 70 told us that. Now they were distinct notice from the multitude who followed Jesus for many of the personal benefits in chapter 4, 23 to 25. Many people follow Jesus for the goods they can get, for the healing, for different things. Nothing has changed. It's still the same. Every century, every generation. The 12 came to him. They were accustomed to sitting at his feet. John 10, 27 says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Notice the Lord Jesus instructed his disciples. He opened up his mouth and began to teach the twelve. The word disciple simply means a learner, a pupil. The teaching is not for unbelievers but it's for believers. This is what's lacking in the church today, teaching the word of God. There's all kinds of theatrical things, emotional things, heretical things, experiential things, but people are not being taught the word of God. It's like the people of God don't have the stomach to sit and get taught. They can't handle solid meat today. They want the pudding, the cake. They don't want them to be approached personally. They want to be fed with a slingshot. The multitudes in the background, they're not the primary audience. We see it here and we see it at the end of chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. You remember Martha was distracted by much serving and he told the Lord to have her sister Mary help her. Listen to the words of Jesus. Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful, and Mary has chosen the good part, which will not be taken away from her. Luke 10, 38-42. What was it? Sitting at Jesus' feet. Do you do that? I'm not talking about coming to church right now, though that's part of it. Are you a disciple? Do you sit at the feet of Jesus for him to speak to you, to teach you, to correct you, to chasten you? Do you consider yourself a disciple, a learner, a pupil of Jesus? Do you read your Bible daily, sit at his feet, say, my minister to you? Do you go Genesis to Revelation? One year, that's nothing. 
Five chapters a day, two days off. Hmm. Do you study the Word of God for yourself? A book at a time, starting with one chapter book, Philemon, Jude, then go to three chapter, two chapter, four chapter, five chapter, 66 chapters. Through the years, how long have you been walking with God? Do you only depend upon me? Then you're not learning anything. But if you're going to Jesus Christ, then you will learn the most important things of life. Psalm 119, 9 through 11 says, How can a young man cleanse his ways by taking heed according to your words? With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. In the heart, not the head. Do you belong to a church that's committed to the teaching of the word of God? Do you sit under a passive teacher to be a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because that's part of it. To be involved in the particular ministry that God has called you and enabled you as you come alongside doing the work of the Lord. To serve according to those gifts that God has given you. Enabling you to do it, not natural ability. Anything that we read from the scripture is not natural ability. It's spirit empowered and enabled to be and to do what we can do. Scripture says, take heed to yourself and to the doctrine continuing them. For in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. 1 Timothy 4, 16. People are looking. They're hearing. They're watching. This is what disciples do. They, they get taught by Jesus. Notice secondly in verse 3 through 9. Who disciples are. These beatitudes describe characteristics of the character of a Christian yielding and living life in the power of the Spirit. The beatitudes are interrelated and interdependent. They're upon one upon another, the first being the base, and those that follow build upon it. Um, and the extension, the progression from the first to the last, it's like building a building. They are synthetic parallel Hebrew poetry. The second line completes the meaning of the first line. You have the proclamation and then the promises, we'll see. The first four are passive towards God. The next three are active towards man. The last two are consequential and active against believers, as we'll see, persecution. Some C8 combine. Others combine the last two, and rather than seeing nine, they see eight. It's up to you. You're going to get the material if you study. So, look at verse 3. The first beatitude is identified the poor in spirit. The proclamation is about a person who acknowledges their spiritual bankruptcy before God to be saved. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The word blessed. Uh, Makarios is translated by most, oh, how happy. It's exclamatory. Oh, how happy. Like you would see something. Oh, you're just a blessed man. You has 14, 15, 25 grandchildren. You're a blessed man. You're happy. In other words, you're being, you, you are very um, content and you're celebrating life. The happiness over being poor in spirit is the awareness of the sinner to their um, spiritual poverty by the Holy Spirit, not his material poverty. This happiness has to be distinguished from the happiness of unbelievers in the world. The person who is not a Christian bases their happiness on the physical, the material, the situation, the circumstance, the emotional state of their life. So they're up, they're down. You buy a new car, man, you're happy, man, it smells good. You're driving it out, somebody smashes into you. Now you're not so happy. The amount of money you have, the success, the health, the fame, the opinion of others. This is all the outward world. The one happy is the poor in spirit. 
The word poor there means extreme poverty. To the point of destruction, the root word literally means crouch or cower. To bring you to your knees in desperation. There's other people who, there's a word that they were poor, but they could live day to day. This word means you couldn't get by. I mean, you are poor, but this is talking about spiritually, your awareness. The word in this context describes a person who sees himself in poverty of spirit with no personal worth or merit before God to be justified before God or be saved. Have you come to that point? The opposite of poor in spirit is pride, like the church of Laodicea. She said, I am rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing. And God says, and you do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, Revelation 3.17. Many people like this in the church, ladies and gentlemen. The spiritual promise, notice, is this is the declaration of the benefit and reward. That's what follows. It completes the beatitude. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The tense is the indicative present active. The believer is a partaker of the spiritual benefit and blessing of the kingdom that is present and yet to come because the church has arrived. The kingdom has arrived. The kingdom of heaven has arrived in part and that happened when the King Jesus Christ came and offered salvation through grace. It's moving forward. The kingdom is present and yet to come. The church is not the kingdom, but part of the kingdom. The church will not establish the kingdom, but will return with Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ will set up the kingdom. Now, how do you measure that to all the teaching of kingdom theology today? All over the place. Unbiblical. We will never establish the kingdom. Jesus will establish the kingdom. The world's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. Sorry to tell you that. If you read your Bible, it's not news. Look at verse 4. The second beatitude identifies those who mourn. The proclamation is about a person who comprehends the alienation and destructiveness of their sins before God. Listen to the words. Blessed are those who mourn. Once again, Marcarios, oh, how happy those who mourn. Doesn't sound right at first, does it? The happiness about one who mourns refers to the spiritual awareness of the evil and destruction resulting from their sin against God and man. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. The regret of consequence of their life, the way they've lived it, the damage they brought, the things they did, the destruction to their own life. The Holy Spirit turns on the light and you realize it for the first time. You don't say, well, we all mess up. No, no, no. That's just human assessment. When God allows you to see the destructiveness of sin in your life. This is the happy spiritual condition a believer arrives at through Repentance. The person has a new awareness of sin. Such a person is truly a happy person. You are so happy that you've come to this state aware of your sinfulness. The word mourn means a heartbreaking lament. Context of those who mourn is not for death or an unfortunate event. It's over the sinfulness and depravity of that person before God. John 1, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amos 3, 3, can two walk together except to be agreed? No, it's a rhetorical question with only one correct answer. I agree with God that I do not deserve heaven. I must come to the awareness that I am poor in spirit, unable to enter heaven apart from him. Notice the promise follows the declaration of benefit or reward. If they shall, for they shall be comforted. The word comforted simply means to come alongside, parakaleo. God sees the poverty and brokenness of spirit and lament over one sin. Many people cry, they lament, they do that outwardly, but inwardly there's nothing. God sees the insight. God consoles a heartbroken sinner as well as the saint over their sin when they come to him in true mourning of the Spirit. 
God encourages a heartbroken sinner or saint over the forgiveness of their sin. Because sometimes our sin is so devastating, it just destroys us and it destroys so many other people. What we've done. Hmm. The comfort is in the reconciled and restored communion with God. You remember Peter. He was reconciled by Jesus. Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep, feed my sheep. Hmm. The tense here is the indicative future passive when the sinner and saint asks forgiveness immediately. But he looks at a true brokenness, not simply words or emotions. The sinner and saint are partakers of this spiritual benefit and blessing of the kingdom now on the earth where it has arrived. Verse 5, you have the third beatitude, identifies the meek. The proclamation is about a person who is a humble servant of God. Blessed are the meek. Once again, Macarios, happy. Oh, how happy. Oh, how blessed the meek are. The happiness of being meek is due to their spiritual condition, not asserting their rights or will, but trusting God. The meek person is the one who rests in God, depends on God. The context here means gentle, mild, power under control, not weakness. It was used for the breaking of a horse. Power under control. Meekness is submission to the will and purpose of God due to the new birth and living under the power of the Spirit. Not being self-will. Not being rebellious. Even though we have the potential, we're a new creation, a new person. I check myself. I realize that I cannot allow the old man to live, for he will destroy everything that God wants to do. This third beatitude is the result of the second, mourning over their sins. And being comforted, just like the second one, is the result of the first. They're built one upon another. Meekness rests on the righteousness of Christ, not self-righteousness. To endure without retaliation. To be patient without resentment. To persevere without bitterness. Anybody can do it on their own, please stand up so we can laugh. <laughs> Impossible, apart from the Holy Spirit of God. Now notice the promise is a declaration of benefit or reward again, for they shall inherit the earth. The in word inherit simply means to receive a lot or apart from a person who has died and bequeathed it to you, whether it be a family member or another. Jesus is the last Adam who died in our place for the sins of the world. Those repenting of their sins are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, Paul says in Romans 8, 17. Those who are poor spirit, those who have mourned and been comforted. 2 Corinthians 8, 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that through he, though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. That you, through his poverty, might become rich. The riches in Christ Jesus. Oh, search the scriptures. It's the treasure chest. The tense is the indicative future active. Ultimately, in the kingdom age, we will rule with Christ. But even now, we enjoy and appreciate the creation of God to a greater measure than we ever did before we were saved. Hmm. Then comes the fourth beatitude. It identifies those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Verse 6. The proclamation, notice, is about the person who cannot get enough of God and godliness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for or after righteousness. Once again, blessed. Macarius. Oh, how happy. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, 
Happiness over a spiritual condition as the others. The ones happy are those who hunger, those who thirst after righteousness. The context of the expression hunger and thirst is not um, dealing with literal food of bread and drink, but spiritual like the first three. The fourth beatitude to hunger and thirst are the result of the third being meek, living by the power of the Spirit. The Greek grammar indicates perfect or complete hunger and thirst. Not a mild dose, just snacking on the word. Some Christians think that God called them just to be part-time. Just to kind of just, once in a while, just open the word or turn on a little radio or it's not the whole of their life. It's a mistake. Jesus, the bread of life, he offered a water that she would never thirst again in Samaria, John 4, John 10. Bread and water, essentials. Righteousness means that which pleases and glorifies God. Desiring the things of God in order to transform us from day to day. Striving to put on the mind of Christ by the Spirit. Submitting to the will of God that is found in the Word of God. This is a sanctified life. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, then all these things shall be added unto you. If you seek all those other things for happiness, you're going to be empty. Whether it be in drugs and sex and pleasure, your, your profession, your career, whatever it is, you're going to come up empty, okay? All those things are legitimate in their context through life, but they're not the most important thing. We forget. We get... The problem is that we have tolerated the world so much that the church has become like the world. There was no problem distinguishing a Christian from someone in the world in the first century church. None at all. G. Campbell Morgan defined hungering and thirsting for um, or after righteousness as the following, quote, divine discontentment with everything unlike God. Psalm 42, 1, as the heart pants uh, after water, so pants my soul after you, O God. David in Psalm 51, 1, Revelation 22, 17, thirsting, thirsting, drinking, drinking, the water of life. Notice the promise is the declaration of benefit or reward again, for they shall be filled. The phrase, they shall be filled, is again the indicative future passive. This indicates the person benefits to every believer who hungers and thirsts after this. It's individual, the desires to grow, to maturity, to developing, to hungering more and thirsting more. It's an addiction, if you will. The word fill means to satisfy with food. The word was used of cattle fattened in the stall. Listen to Job. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job 23, 12. You've heard of Job, right? Hmm. Notice the fifth beatitude identifies now the merciful in verse 7. The proclamation is about the person who empathizes with the misery of others and comes to their help. Blessed are the merciful. Once again, blessed means happy. Oh, how happy. Oh, how blessed are those who are merciful. The happiness over the spiritual condition is knowing it is not due to them, but the power of the Spirit. You don't applaud yourself. You don't commend yourself. You don't just look at people and say, yeah. 
because you have been broken by God by your own permission. You have mourned over your sin. It's resulted in meekness and a great hunger and thirst for righteousness. Therefore, you become more merciful because you know you deserve nothing but hell. Wow. The context of the expression, the merciful, is literally those who are propitious to an extent. But it's spiritual like the three preceding, okay? It's not just being kind to somebody. The context is your new birth, endued and empowered by the Spirit of God. The fifth beatitude and the next two are now active towards man. The direction has changed. They work to God. Now it's the man. The first four were passive towards God. Merciful means pitying a person with a compassionate heart, entering into the individual's pain and misery of heart to ease it. In fact, when you are pitying somebody, you're compassionate. You even, if they're on the ground, something has happened, you, 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 you couch down, you, you, your, your voice is sympathetic, it's tender. The very physical and the tone of your voice indicates your compassion. Mercy is serving compassionately as the Good Samaritan of Luke 10, 30-37. Mercy deals with forgiveness, not being self-righteous like the evil unforgiving servant of Matthew 18, 21 through 35, who was forgiven millions and got the guy who owed him pennies and said, I'm going to put you in jail. And so the master recalled him and says, how much did I forgive you? Millions. How much did he owe you? Pennies. You're going to jail. Wow. We forget Mercy is less than we deserve. Grace is what we do not deserve. The tax collector, along with the publican or the uh, Pharisee. Pharisee says, Lord, I thank you. I'm not like other men. And he's probably looking at the Pharisee. Tax collector, murder, this, that. The tax collector not even raising his eyes to heaven, hitting his breast. He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Propitiate me literally. Wow. Luke 18, 13. Jesus says, this man prayed with himself. This man went home justified. Notice the promise is the declaration of benefit or reward again. For they shall obtain mercy the phrase is again the indicative future passive. This indicated the personal benefit of receiving mercy from others because you have been merciful. You see, if you're merciful, then people will be merciful to you. This is not a condition for God to be merciful to you. In other words, if you're not merciful, God won't be merciful to you. It's talking about if you're merciful to others and others, the direction now is not God, but man. Okay? But we do reap to what we sow, right? The benefit is imparted to the merciful from man, but also from God, but it's not a condition. Joseph was merciful to his brothers, remember, who sold him to the Midianites, and then the Midianites sold him to Potiphar in Egypt. And yet Joseph provided for them in Genesis 39 and 45. Hmm. The book of Lamentations 3, 22, 23 says, Though the Lord's mercies, or through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed, because his compassion failed not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. His mercies new every morning. Less than we deserve, ladies and gentlemen, young people. This is what's going on inside. All these things, not outside. Inside. 
Notice the sixth beatitude identifies the pure in heart in verse 8. The proclamation is about the person who is wholeheartedly and devoted to God. Blessed are the pure in heart. Once again, Makarios. Oh, how happy, acclamatory. The happiness over their spiritual condition is the ability to live without guilt and shame. The ones happy are the pure in heart. The context of the expression, the pure in heart, is literal yet spiritual. God, having cleansed and created a new heart in us, distinct from our desperately wicked and deceitful heart of Jeremiah 17, 9. David cries out in Psalm 51, 10, created me a new heart, right spirit within me. Jesus speaks in Matthew 12, 34 of a new heart. And the old heart is in contrast always. The old man, back to the bone. This fifth beatitude is the result of the first four beatitudes, being born again and living godly by the Holy Spirit. Not just being religious. The word pure, katharos, means to clean, purify, free from corrupt desires, sin, and guilt. The psychologists use this type of therapy, catharsis. So people are all, they have all this hate for their mother, so they put them in a room and they have them a bat and they don't beat this body bag. And then they feel, oh, I feel better. But that's just letting steam out outwardly. It's going to build up inwardly again. That's just a symptom. You've got to go to the cause. Your heart is the problem. And so we have people taking their lives. We just had a young man take his life here in PCC this week. And the week before, another one jumped off Suicide Bridge. We're a hopeless generation, ladies and gentlemen. What people need to hear is the gospel of Jesus Christ and the hope that's in Christ, no one else. But even the church is suppressing the gospel, going to the emergentism of it, the experience, the, all this stuff that doesn't deal with the cause. It deals with the symptoms because the church has become so much like the world. The word is used of washed clothes, wheat separated, soldiers purged from cowards, unmixed. The idea is an individual, uh, an undivided heart, living and walking with God, continually being transformed. We're not talking about perfection. We're talking about staying on course, pressing forward, looking to Him, yielding to the Spirit of God, reckoning the old man dead, putting on the mind of Christ. This would indicate all thoughts, motives, acts, deeds, for they are all seen by God. God told Samuel when he went to the house of Jesse to anoint David the following. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. We look at the outside. We look at this young man that's just handsome and all the promise before him. But his heart is so rotten, so depraved, so evil. You look at this young woman who's just beautiful outwardly. Everybody, it just turns heads. But inside, she's a black widow. Amazing. We get caught up by the outside. God sees the inside. The promise is the declaration of benefit or reward, for they shall see God. The phrase is the indicative future middle. The middle voice now is specific to the individual having that pure heart. It's a general proclamation, but promise to all, but the individual specific to you. He gets real personal, you, me. This indicates the press and benefit to every believer with a pure heart. 
The benefit is by yielding to the Spirit of God to have this pure heart. Remember Stephen, Acts 7, 55, 56 says, But he, being filled with the Spirit, gazed up to heaven. They're going to stone him. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and says, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is a real man on real earth. With a pure heart preaching the gospel. Ready to die. He sees Jesus standing up to receive the first martyr of the church. Hmm. Hebrews twelve fourteen says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. The seventh beatitude identifies the peacemakers. Verse 9. The proclamation is about the person who is a peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. Once again, Macarius. Oh, how happy. Exclamatory. Happiness over the spiritual condition is knowing you please God. The ones happy are the peacemakers. The context of the expression is literal and spiritual. The fifth beatitude is the result of the first four beatitudes having been born again and being godly. The seventh beatitude is active and towards men like the fifth and the sixth. The direction is horizontal now. The word peacemaker means to bring about good and stable relations between people, seeking others' interests above their own, seeking reconciliation, not rights. All we hear is about rights today. It's led us to a, a crazy mentality of entitlement. Let me tell you what you're entitled to, hell. That's the only thing you are entitled to. The rest is all grace. Please understand that. Seeking unity, not strife. Seeking to please God at any personal expense except doctrine, which the church is giving up. The church is giving up doctrine for being peacemakers. God does not accept that. He rejects that. The promise is the declaration of benefit or reward. Listen again, for they shall be called the sons of God. The phrase is the indicative future passive once again. This indicates the present benefit to every believer being a peacemaker. This gives evidence of their resemblance to their heavenly father, their family resemblance, the spirit by which they are yielding to and being ruled by, by willful submission to it, not compulsion. The benefit of being a son of God is imparted to the peacemakers. For as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God. Romans 8.14 says, For the earnest expectation of creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Romans 8.19 For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, the government will be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9.6. There's to be a resemblance. Paul was an incredible peacemaker, but he never contradicted or compromised doctrine, ever. You know, Joseph... Being a person of character was made second to Pharaoh because they could see that God was with him. The church today has been too tolerant of the world, as I said earlier. And um, it's not that the world is tolerant of us. We have been too tolerant of the world and become like the world as the church today. 
And we really are failing in our light and salt as he will move on to speak about. Have you come to understand your poverty of spirit and mourn over your sin against God and man? I've made it a a practice whenever I run into somebody that I did wrong in the world that I go up to them and ask them forgiveness. And God has allowed me to do that to a good number of people. I don't go search them out. I don't know where they're at. I don't know what's going on. But when I've come across them, I've asked them. Very important to me. This only takes place through the preaching of the gospel. Romans ten seventeen, Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. This only takes place by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, as John 16, 8 through 11 says, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. What's going on inside? Have you come to the place of meekness and long and hungering after righteousness? Natural humility and being nice is not biblical meekness. Neither is it weakness. This is God's doing. There's none righteous. No, not one, Romans 3, 10 says. Not one. In the natural realm. Going to church and having head knowledge is not longing and desiring to walk with God. It's self-deception. James chapter 1, 22 through 25 tells about that man that goes to the mirror and forgets what he looks like. He's a hearer but not a doer. We're warned. Are you a merciful person with a pure heart and a peacemaker? James again, 2.13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It doesn't mean we don't call out sin. We do. But once there's repentance, we're merciful, gracious, very important. David put it this way, who may ascend into the hill of the Lord or who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to an idol nor sworn deceitfully, Psalm 24, 3 through 4. Do you think that's possibly applicable for today? Absolutely. This is who... Disciples are happy people of character. How are we doing? Many Christians are not that happy today because they're looking for the happiness like the world. Become too much like the world. Hmm. Third and last, what disciples can expect, 10 through 12. Look at 10. The eighth beatitude identifies those persecuted for righteousness. The proclamation is about the person who is persecuted. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. The word again, blessed, Marcarios. Oh, how happy! The exclamation there, how blessed! The happiness over the spiritual condition and state is of their godly life. The ones happy are those who are persecuted. For righteousness' sake. The context is literal, physical oppression and harm, even to death. The eighth beatitude is the result of the one or all the first seven beatitudes. Having been born again and now godly. This eighth beatitude is active towards man. How can he say he can be happy for all this? And you're being persecuted because you're not doing it on your own. You're not living for yourself. Christ is living through you, the hope of glory. The word persecuted means to make, to run, to flee, to pursue one. Literally having been persecuted for righteousness, underline that, for righteousness sake, a life pleasing and acceptable to God. The persecution is not for being weird or obnoxious. The persecution is not for being self-righteous. The persecution is for living Christ-like 
in this world. For righteousness sake. Greek scholar put it this way. They are veteran soldiers of righteousness with an unmistakable air of dignity, serenity, and buoyancy about them. The promise is the declaration of benefit or reward for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The phrase is indicative, present, active. The promise is identical to the first, the poor in spirit, benefit to every believer, personal, who is persecuted for righteousness sake. This is the eighth beatitude, the number of new beginnings, a new life. Listen is a promise of persecution. Now, we as American church know nothing about this, but don't think it's not biblical. The rest of the world has lived like this. The kingdom of heaven had arrived in part with the coming of the king of the Jews and salvation by grace and moving towards the full arrival. The church is not the kingdom, as I said, but part of the kingdom present yet to come. The church will not establish the kingdom, but will return with Jesus and Jesus will set up the kingdom. The hall of faith, living for righteousness, is given to us in Hebrews 11, chapter 11, verse 1 through 16. Read it. The ninth beatitude identifies those persecuted for Christ. There's a distinction between the two. Notice verse 11 and 12. The proclamations about the persons who are persecuted. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. It's a little different. Once again, the happiness, the blessedness, exclamatory over the spiritual condition uh, is being intimate in fellowship being strengthened by God. The ones happy are those who are reviled and shall be persecuted for the sake of Jesus. The context of this is literal, verbal, to revile, to reproach, abrade, and the physical pursuing as a hunter to oppress and to harm even to death, as in verse 10. The era's active tense. This ninth beatitude is the result of one or all the first eight beatitudes having been born again and living a godly life under the Spirit of God, ladies and gentlemen. The ones happy are those accused of all kinds of evil against them falsely for they for the sake of Jesus Christ. Evil, ponderos, indicating the nature of wickedness, even delighting in it. Falsely, something untrue and maligning to a person, a participle present, middle voice, the middle voice once again, the individual is the one that is yielding to God, being persecuted here for all these things. He says, for my sake, on account of being a disciple of Jesus for his glory. First Peter chapter 4, 12 through 16. We're not to think it's strange when we fall into diverse trials with perfecting of our saint, of our faith. More precious than gold. Wow. Notice the promise is the declaration of benefit or reward. Rejoicing and be exceedingly glad. For great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The double command makes it emphatic to rejoice, to be glad, imperative, present, active tense. It's a general command for all. To be exceedingly glad is a glad with greatness, the specific command to the individual because it's the middle voice, the person going through the persecution, through the suffering. This encompasses the church age and the seven-year tribulation. There'll be many to be martyred then. The reason is, for great is your reward in heaven. For the Christian is, will be rewarded to be the seat of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15. Other passages in Romans also. The motive is the heart. The motive of the heart. 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Not what I did, but why I did it. How I did it. 
God's not impressed by what I do. It's how I do it, why I do it. This is nothing new. And you are in good company, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Listen to Paul. The Thessalonians said, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophet and have persecuted us and they, as they do not please God and are contrary to all men. 1 Thessalonians 2.15 The church as well as the individuals have suffered persecution since the first century throughout the world. We know nothing about it except reading books. The United States is the exception. The New Testament is clear about Christians and persecutions. They go together like peanut butter and jam. Except here. We got a little taste of it during Obama's reign. The brakes have been put on for a little while. But it's coming. Please understand it's coming. Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. John fifteen eighteen. Peter said, But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake... You are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats nor be troubled. 1 Peter 3.14 Peter again says, If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part he is blasphemed. On your part he is glorified. 1 Peter 4.14 The Hall of Faith lists specific people who suffered for their faith. Listen. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and uh, confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Hebrews 11.13 Still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, of of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, were slain in the sword, they wandered about in sheepskins, and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy, they wandered in desert and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. Hebrews eleven thirty six through thirty eight. Paul says this. Therefore, we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing. Yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding eternal way of glory. While we do not look at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen, but the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are not seen are eternal. Second Corinthians four, sixteen through eighteen. Do do you believe all this stuff? I sure hope so. Because persecution is coming. As sure as I have one eye. It's coming. No way for but about it. This is what disciples can expect. Persecution for living godly and identifying with Jesus Christ. Maybe not the message you want to hear this morning, but you need it. I need it. We've been living in la-la land too long. The Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount provide a threefold lens regarding disciples of Christ. What disciples do, they get taught by Jesus. Who disciples are, happy people of character. What disciples can expect, persecution for living godly and identifying with Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your loving goodness. Thank you for your grace. Pray for every person here. And Lord, I pray that you would deal with all of our hearts. There is none good. No, not one, Lord. And we thank you for your grace and mercy and we pray that you would deal with our hearts and we would be a light to the community, that we would be a light to our families, to our children, our grandchildren, Lord, to those around us, that you would be glorified. As you're praying, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved, to repent of your sins. If you're over the internet, the same thing. It's by the Spirit of God that you're convicted to see your poverty of spirit that if you do not repent, you will end up in hell. God wants to save you, forgive you, but you must yield to God. You must agree with God and you must come to him as a child and he will do for you what you can never do for yourself. If this is your desire and your decision, it's the work of God. This is your prayer of repentance, right? Where you sit, he's going to save you right now and forgive you and comfort you for all your sins.
Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.